Welcome back to my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. Here we are for the fifth series. As usual, we'll be covering all things that shape employee experience, engagement, performance, and loyalty. And that's a biggie at a time with budget cuts and the workforce feeling the pinch, including increasing pressure at work. We'll be unpicking how leaders show up and create the right culture for people to thrive. One that enables psychological safety, builds team cohesion, and nurtures mental well-being. I'm your host, Lisa. As a psychologist and a psychotherapist in my business, It's Time for Change, I get to make a real difference in the world of people. I help deal with those challenges and questions that consume headspace. So whether that's knowing how best to support people, reduce overwhelm, or develop better ways of working, I'm your soundboard, problem unpicker, and guide to doing things differently that ultimately increase employee happiness and outcomes. My mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. So let's dive in. So today I'm joined by Rob Stevenson, who's a TEDx speaker, mental health campaigner, and founder of Form School and the Inside Out Leaderboard. Rob, I'm really pleased um, to be able to welcome you to the show today. Thank you, Lisa. Really good to be here. It's uh, going to be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And actually, when I was kind of thinking about the stuff that you do and what you're involved with, I could have carried on writing lots of different things because you're very active in this space. So um, I'm sure this is going to be a great conversation. Um, quality conversations uh, and check-ins and normalising conversations around mental health and you know, calling for action and so on are something I'm super passionate about. And you're someone who's really helping bridge that gap between, I think, the the kind of the theory, the ideas that we should be doing this stuff differently and making it much more simple in terms of we just need to go about it like this. It's not rocket yeah. science. Yeah. Um, so I quite look forward to p- unpicking that. Um, and also I when I um, was looking a little bit more at form score recently, and you can tell us a bit more about it, I was struck by actually how it's evolved since um, when it first emerged. And it was something I used to recommend, um, I was recommending a lot to individual clients to use, but actually now it seems to have grown much bigger and much wider for companies to use and so on. So I'm really looking forward to hearing about that. But tell, I would love to start by telling um, you telling us about what what's kind of got you into this space. Like what is it that's got you into doing what you do today why are you so passionate about this sure thank you and and, and thank you for recommending original form score to your clients i remember that interaction very well mm-hmm. and and that that original app is still available for individuals to use to track their own well-being um but what, what got me into it well back back in 2017 i decided to share my story of being bipolar of experiencing bipolar disorder as it's known and I'd I'd seen a good friend of mine now do a talk, Jeff McDonald. Jeff is like the, the godfather of workplace well-being campaigning. And I heard Jeff share his story of anxiety and the loss of his friend to suicide. And Lisa, I felt I felt a bit of shame, really. I felt shame because, you know, there I was with a a, a great team around me, a successful business, and every week when I'd go and see my therapist, I was putting physiotherapy in my diary. Mm. And it kind of just that moment for me, it kind of felt dishonest. It felt it felt a bit shameful. And I thought, I'm going to share my story. And so I did in a pretty awkward Facebook post, as as we often do. But the reaction to that post changed my direction and changed my life. Because what I found was I was getting a huge number of people from my immediate network sharing their stories back of depression, of anxiety, even a, a good friend from um, one of my sporting clubs shared that he had attempted to end his life um, and experience his crippling depression and he told no one well now he's told me and we kind of check in with each other and this really opened my eyes to how many people experience a mental health challenge but do so in silence because of the stigma and that really motivated me to think how could I contribute to the mission of improving our workplaces and societies initially by just smashing the stigma which is a big tagline of mine Mm. And over the last seven years, that's evolved into all of the stuff that is on my long and exhaustive to read profile um, as I've added more things in. But the mission has remained the same, really. It's can we 
normalize conversation? Can we get people thinking differently about mental health and well-being? Can we get workplaces to do it better? Can we support each other more? Can we create those spaces to check in with each other? And and you know, kind of treat mental well-being like we do our physical fitness, our physical health. And so that that was the catalyst, though. It was sharing my my story um, of a challenge I've managed for you know the last twenty years. Mm. And I and I love the fact that you know you have that courage to write that very first LinkedIn post. It's just about being authentic, isn't it? And it's the sense of relief people have when they can just show up and they can just be themselves and they can say this is how it is whatever that's to do with and people hear that and it's just it gives that permission and we talk about all the time around psychological safety and role modeling and and so on but actually to to hear you having done that and then the response you got it's really powerful yeah but you, you you use the word sense of relief there I'd say I'd say there's a bigger effect actually so for me and I've I've heard many others share the same experiences since I could be open about my mental illness and my challenges, actually the power of that illness over me has diminished a little bit. So mm-hmm. the incidences of depression are less. The incidences of hypermania are, are less frequent. The magnitude of them is much lower than it was. Now, part of that, I think, is because I'm no longer carrying the burden of pretending to be something I'm not, particularly mm-hmm. when I'm down or particularly when I'm up. So I think, you know, that... And, you, you know, you're a psychotherapist. You, I'm sure there's some good theories as to why this is the case. But, you know, for me, when we're kind of pretending to be something we're not, that's an additional stress that we're carrying in addition to the, the mental health challenge in the first place. And it's a, it kind of goes around in a cycle. So I felt liberated. Mm. You know, and I remember some very awkward conversations that I wanted to tell everyone. It's, hi, I've just met you in a garden party. I'm Rob Stevenson. I'm bipolar, you know, and it took me a while to find a balance. <laughs> Um, because it it was liberating. It's the right way of describing it. So I think if we can create those psychologically safe spaces in our communities, in our workplaces, in our friend groups, and allow people to share their challenges, not only will they get support, but they will also can be themselves. And we know being ourselves is just a good thing, right? Mm. And and it just, you know, that's a great message about that feeling of being liberated because I was uh, talking to someone yesterday about, uh, anxiety and actually the fear of being anxious increases the anxiety and it's mm. about how you reduce the fear and again talking about it and just saying this is how I'm feeling right now and actually putting a little bit of distance between yourself and the anxiety it's like I can choose whether to listen to it or not I'm going to choose what I do with it right now and and but I but I like that I think that's really powerful when you can acknowledge that you don't have to you can take a bit more control just by talking about it without necessarily having to try and cure it. It's a different way of focusing on it. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think for me, it, when you can be open about what you feel, I think that also allows the practice of acceptance. Mm. And, I, and I talk about acceptance quite a lot as a tool that I use, particularly when I'm depressed, to to understand that, okay, this is my experience of being human right now, today. It's not forever. It will pass. It might seem like it won't, but it will, and I can accept it. And I think acceptance is a lot easier when you can be authentically yourself. Um, And again, all of these things are little tools, little hacks to be able to sort of diminish the power of these challenges that they have over us. So part of your drive to make change I guess is what then also created or led you to create the inside out leaderboard yeah tell us a little bit more about that yeah so I kind of this this passion was ignited in me at that time and I thought I want to contribute I want to make a difference and I started looking for a way to do that so I kind of met anybody that would talk to me in that time you know I started with Jeff McDonald who I've mentioned I met Sue Baker who led time to change I met Paul Farmer um, I met all of these people working in the space, and I remember attending a, a conference that was put on by Legal and General, um, and it was at Twickenham, and I was amazed. There were all these people standing up on stage sharing their stories, um, but we, after a, a long, full day, the CEO, Sir Nigel Wilson, as he is now, um, stood up and said, the number one takeaway for me is that we need more senior leaders sharing their stories of mental ill health to act as role models. And that came through in a lot of the discussions. And I thought, 
I could probably do something about that. So I used to work with a guy called Suki Sandu, um, who runs um, the, the the power lists that are published for gender diversity and, and the BAME lists, etc. And I thought, could we apply that concept to mental illness? Could we find business leaders who are open about their challenges of mental ill health and simply publish a list to say, it is okay to talk about your mental health challenges and celebrate those leaders that are open because, you know, we kind of push kind of mental illness under the carpet as if it's something we can't talk about. The stigma is rife and it still is even these years later. And so my idea was very simple. Let's let's find people that can shine a light on this because when our leaders speak out, we know that creates a positive effect in creating that psychological safety in those organizations for, for others. It creates mm-hmm. a ripple effect. And it also can create a ripple effect of more leaders deciding to share their stories to come out. So very simply, we've published now four iterations of the leaderboard. The criteria is you are in a position of leadership, CEO, or three stages removed um, or equivalent. You've experienced a mental health challenge um, or have a direct family member that does, and you are prepared to be open about it. And we've published now with well over 300 individuals who have put their name to it on a global basis to say it is okay to talk about mental ill health. And I'm really proud of it. It's been a labor of love and mm-hmm. done with very little uh, resource and support. We're just trying to get it properly funded as a charity now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm proud of the impact we've had of more leaders coming forward, sharing stories, and then them taking that into their workplace. Mm-hmm. So you've posted on LinkedIn today, which mm-hmm. was, Brilliant timing. Um, uh, it's an opinion piece on the future of well-being. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. When you talk about well-being, Rob, what specifically are you referring to? Because it's a term that's really broadly used, and I'm interested in your take on it. Yeah, so I think I think well-being is a good a good term if we can kind of again normalize the meaning of it. For me, I, I quite you know I quite like the the idea of being in a well-being being a state that we're able to do the things we want to do and contribute to our workplaces societies families communities etc i think that's something like the world health organization mm. definition mm. um you know i quite like the simple ons question of how satisfied are you with your life nowadays i think that is a good way of framing what is my well-being today but for me it's just bringing in you know all of the aspects that are, are relevant to your ability to do what you want to do your sleep your exercise your mental health um your nutrition your sense of purpose all of these factors um to give us you know an idea that this is something that we can influence where we are so as you can see my background you know using my form score scale I'm a 7 out of 10 yeah you know, a few weeks ago in a period of depression I was a 3 out of 10 now I again I knew that there are things that I could do to get to a four, then get to a five. There's probably things that I know I can do to to try and get to an eight. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work that way. But I think if we start thinking of our well-being as something we can proactively manage and and, um, have an influence over, we can then start to um, improve it. But yeah, I've, I've digressed a little bit. It's that idea of, you know, equipping ourselves with, you know, the resources to do what we want to do in life. And it's so powerful, isn't it, when we think about where we're at and are able to measure it in some way to give us an insight into what we can do to make a small change. Because when people say, well, this is where I am right now and have a vague notion of and often can't put, can't articulate it. Yeah. And then they think actually to be better, it needs to be I need to be cured. I need to, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And and I use something called an emotional needs audit, um, mm. which is breaking down emotional needs. And again, scaling. As soon as you use scaling, I I love scaling because it just helps people identify where they're at and what stops them going one way, or what helps them go the other way, and who might be involved and what other people are noticing. Mm. And that you can have a whole conversation with someone literally around a school, can't you? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, this is the magic, right? So I, I, I call, you know, self-reflection, the gift of self-reflection, the gift we can do to ourselves. And I do this exercise in all of my keynotes and I've got this kind of music keynote that I do. And, and while I'm doing this, I now play the theme tune to Harry Potter just to give the sense of magic, right? Yeah. Because if if you get a bunch of people and you say, look, score yourself out of 10 on your well-being you know and and think about what is driving it um, and have that in your head 
And then turn to the person next to you, stranger, friend, whoever, have a conversation, share your scores if you feel comfortable doing so, and share what's driving it. And this is magical, Lisa. I've done this in small audiences. I've done it in massive audiences. And you see people just start quietly talking. Then you see eye contact. You see laughter. You see smiles. You see the magic of human connection because we've actually been a little bit vulnerable by sharing that score. And so we've immediately created a safe space and then that facilitates trust and connection and so it's a beautiful thing to see if we can you know have that little bit of vulnerability and feel safe and brave enough to do it and that's a lovely way of just introducing that concept of being vulnerable and actually how how good that can feel when you're just sharing it with one other person and Mm. and when I think sometimes when companies think about organizations think about how we can make a real difference and how we can get people talking and so on and they come up with some huge complicated system or strategy and you just think take it back to basics and just start having really good conversations with one other person whoever that is it doesn't matter who it is but just start that conversation with one other and then that can grow but it's going back to those basics isn't it rather than trying to make it really complicated all the time yeah well I think so I mean my latest tagline as you can see is be more human and I think Mm. that's exactly what you're talking about and sometimes we in our workplaces with the masks we put on the roles we play we forget to be human Mm. and you know we can take aside the fear of having conversations about mental illness because that still does exist you know what would I say to somebody if they said oh well you know I experienced schizophrenia for example or something that is more stigmatized you know, we we don't need to get into that. It's helpful to build our awareness and knowledge of that. But actually, what we need to get into is a conversation about, okay, I can see you're not yourself, right? What's going on? You know, I haven't slept well. Okay, do you want? To, is there anything bothering you? Do you want to talk it through? You know, having a real interest in that person at at a human level, and it doesn't need to be complicated. And I think we often overcomplicate it because of the fear of the mental illness and how to respond and everything else actually i like to draw the analogies with cancer if someone said to you uh regrettably i've been diagnosed with cancer you wouldn't sit there and worry if you could prescribe the correct course of chemotherapy as a human being you would say that's really rubbish i'm sorry to hear that what do you need let me give you a hug let's go for a walk let's have a cup of tea that's what you would do and we're fearful with mental health we're fearful talking about well-being and i think we need to move beyond that at a human level. I love that. And it reminds me of just before we hit record today, um, you and I were talking about what we've been undertaking recently. And I was saying that last week I was creating a whole heap of work uh, for my team by producing resources. Um, and one of those was for Mental Health Awareness Week around it's an anxiety framework for normalising conversations to use in teams. Hmm. And it was it was that ability to just say how do I feel about stuff how does it affect me and what what's contributing to that and just it's the prompts that as you say we would have if we were just having a normal day say conversation with someone and we weren't worried about saying the right thing we would naturally say it but suddenly if you're in a work context depending on the relationship between you know if it's a manager and someone the manager's fearful of am I going to say the wrong thing do I know enough about this whatever it is we're talking about what if they say this? What if they ask me that? And that fear just stops people talking rather than just going back to kind of common sense and 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 just having sensitive human conversations. Yeah, you know, that, that's kind of what I love about what we've done with FormScore, which was a tool that mm. originally was given to me by a therapist um, because the number, the score out of 10 can capture so much. You know, I'm a five out of 10. Okay, okay that's, that's, you know, that's not good. That's pretty low. Um, anything I can do, anything you want to talk about? Yes, no. Um, kind of move on but the the ability to say I'm a five is probably a lot easier for some people than it is to say you know I'm struggling with workload right now and I'm finding that quite anxiety triggering or whatever it might be yeah Mm, yeah absolutely so in your before we move on from your opinion piece because there's something else I'd like to pick up on that is you were talking about um there's some data in there talking about the links between employee well-being and company performance it'd be really interesting just to hear for me, uh, sort of some of the highlights around that data that sort of stand out for you that would be again really useful for listeners who perhaps are still slightly skeptical about that correlation 
Um, and it's just it's just helpful to hear it again from you, Rob. Yeah, well, look, I think we're heading to a kind of tipping point or a watershed moment for workplace well-being because the emerging data, I think, is leading the case for investment properly in well-being and not just solutions in, in terms of the impact of work on well-being um, because we, we can now see that well-being is there's a causal link between well-being and individual and team performance. Uh, a study uh, from Oxford University with BT and their call centers really showed that teams with higher well-being were more productive. Okay. Um, similarly, there's there's a lot of data uh, from a study that uh, Oxford have been supporting indeed, the jobs board on around um retention of, of staff and attraction of staff so if if the if well-being is mentioned and the well-being score of the organization is mentioned in a job advert they'll get more responses than those that don't um but really interestingly and i think this will be the game changer that same indeed study which allows people just to rate their employer uh, on well-being they've captured about 15 million data points in the us and what they've done is cross-reference this to stock market performance and it's shown that the top 100 companies on well-being significantly outperform the market. And that's in whether it's a bull market, bear market, you know, or a volatile market. So I think once we start to see this play out, you'll have shareholders like they're doing on ESG stuff, really looking at what are you doing, um, board of directors, on well-being? And if you're not doing stuff, why not? Mm that accountability to uh, to shareholders, I think, will drive change, particularly in large listed companies. So I think this, for me, is, is the catalyst that will kind of get over that scepticism that well-being is soft, fluffy, nice to have, and should be part of benefits and discretionary benefits of that. Mm. It's an essential component of performance. It'll affect your access to talent. It'll affect your access to capital. Um, and we're going to need to do more stuff on it. So I think that that's one big thing uh, that's coming out of the data. I think the other thing, if you think about a well-being maturity model that goes from uh, doing some awareness, perhaps then getting some support solutions in place, thinking about prevention, thinking about digital solutions, thinking about making it more of a strategic priority, that's kind of where we've got to, you know, and, and I talk about visualizing the long trek through the foothills and we've arrived at base camp if you're Unilever, for example, there's still Mount Everest to climb. Um, and, and for me, Mount Everest is about not looking at solutionizing well-being, it's operationalizing it. So it's looking at how is work contributing or lowering the the, the kind of well-being of, of, of their people. Um, and and for that, that's harder, right? You can easily buy a, a, a well-being solution and you'll get a certain level of utilization depending on what it is. It, it won't be good enough. Um, but actually to change culture, ways of working, work practices, resourcing, manager training, all of this stuff, it's probably cheaper, but it's harder to do. And and that is the Everest for me. And I think this is where when I'm starting to hear from people like Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer of Deloitte, it's about well-being being treated as the outcome measure for how well we're we're structuring work and and looking at the determinants of well-being from a work and personal perspective so well said rob because i i going back to sort of talking you know when i mentioned about getting back through the levels of complexity back to basics one of the things that i've talked about it quite a lot that i'm always banging on about is people grasping at different solutions to try and fix this problem and for me it's always about actually strip back everything unless you know it really makes a big difference in which case keep hold of it make sure it fits with everything else strip everything right back and go back to the fundamentals around how aligned people are how um, empowered they are in terms of being able to talk about the things that matter and and really going back to that culture piece because there are so many, I mean, we are flooded since the pandemic. We, the world seems to be flooded with wellbeing solutions and they clearly aren't working, looking at the data of what's happening in, in many workplaces, the number of people yeah. off sick. Yeah, it's interesting though, isn't it? And and Paul Duggan um, at Accenture called me out on this because I, I put quite a provocative post out um, in recent weeks saying 
well-being solutions are not working. And and if you look at the macro level, they're not. Mm. The macro level being indicators on burnout, indicators on workplace stress, they're all rising. Um, the Gallup surveys will, will show you that. Now, that's not to say that these point solutions don't work in isolation for a, a, a whole subset of people. And I think we do need to be careful, and, and I, I respect Paul for his view and, and, and the way he made this point to me, was that we need to be careful that we don't put people off using the solutions that are in place because mm. they can be very beneficial, mm. you know, particularly around things like menopause and financial well-being that are real, real kind of issues there. So I think we need point solutions, but I don't think they're the answer in isolation. And, you know, again, my sensationalizing quote of we need to fix work and stop trying to fix people, I think still applies because I think the bigger gain will be to fix work, to fix working practices, to create meaningful work, to give a sense of autonomy, to mm. you know, treat people as human beings. But you know, we still need support solutions and we need prevention solutions and, and, and digital solutions alongside that, but they're not the answer in isolation. Yeah, I agree. And I think the having a range of solutions that individuals can pick and choose from depending on what's relevant for them, rather than one approach fits all it is but the individual solutions have got to fit with a bigger picture rather than or they've got to be they on their own they're not going to make the big difference I don't think because yeah. you touch pockets of people but you're not going to change experience day to day yeah and I think they've got to fit with the bigger picture but I think the culture has also got to allow people to safely use those resources and you know, and, and we talk about leaders role modeling. Lead, senior leaders need to role model that they're using them. But also, yeah. again, someone made a point uh, to me this morning that um, this idea of leader influencers on this, you know, le leaders need to use their positions to um, to inspire people to engage with these solutions, not just think I've bought X Y Z solution and that's going to fix everything. Um, so, yes, I, th I think we've got to fit, but work has got to be conducive to allow the use of them as well. And how do we, um, you know, your, your piece is around the future of work. And I'm curious to know, because obviously there's the, more and more challenges with digital AI, you know, hybrid working and so on. Our, the way we work is evolving so rapidly. Does that have implications for well-being and how we design our work? to make sure we are enabling people to to thrive in terms of well-being the the, the short answer is yes and <laughs> the longer <laughs> answer is absolutely yes <laughs> yeah so i think yeah, ai is interesting we're hearing a lot of talk about this we have an opportunity with generative ai and and its evolutions to 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 go down one of two paths and and one of those paths is empowering people to upskill to engage in more meaningful work to have more time to switch off from work to have a more balanced workload um another route would be um we're going to make more profit because we can do things cheaper and we can shed people from the workplace now i'm an optimist i have to be in, in and I'm, I'm sure you are too in terms of what we do i'm hoping that it's option a that you know, th these these developments are allowing work to be a better fit, to be more conducive to wellness. Um, in, in your other part of the question around kind of future of work, again, we I think we've got an opportunity as we figure out what that looks like to create work that is more conducive to the health of the humans that are the greatest assets of most companies that own, you know, kind of out there. But I think there's a bit of working through to be done, particularly around flexibility versus connection. So employees want flexibility, flexibility. And of course, you know, as a, a parent of young children, that, that's great for me. I can work from where I want. I run my own business and people want that. But actually, I think what we're starting to see is people are, are, are missing some of the connection mm. that they get from being in the workplace. You hear a lot about kind of, you know, training and learning and on the job learning of, of people coming through but I think we all miss meaningful connection and I think post-pandemic work feels more transactional mm. and as we kind of envisage what the future of work looks like for me it's thinking about how do we get the balance of flexibility autonomy 
and human connection and, and having that level of inspiration between our colleagues. And it's not just kind of rep replicating what you do at home in the office. That's pointless. Mm -hmm. And it's not just, you know, having a, a meeting that could, could be conducted in 30 minutes over Zoom, taking an hour in the office. It's thinking about what's that time? How are we going to bring people together to do magnificent things and inspire people? Um, and so for me, I think we need to work this through and kind of wrestle what does that balance look like um yet still giving people the opportunity to be more flexible and more autonomous have side hustles everything else and so do you have you know what are your thoughts then around that in terms of how we how we shape that because i know i mean i guess part of that about is it's about the quality of check-ins and i know if you know form score is all about having sort of check-ins and and one of the things I hear a lot from managers is, you know, with their very dispersed teams, so how do we have, how do I connect with people who are remote? So it's not just not just a check in in terms of are you okay, but actually to have that connection and how do I make sure that they are feel, not feeling isolated? Have you got thoughts around how we can start to think about that as we move forward? And, you know, that that becomes a bigger challenge. Yeah, so I think I mean it, it'll vary, obviously, depending on the degrees of remoteness and where people are geographically. But if you've got a truly remote workforce and you're saving all of that money on lack of office costs, don't expect that to be a saving. Use use those resources to get people together and fly people in if you need to, mm. environment concerns notwithstanding. Um, but get people together physically in a meaningful cadence that you're building connection. You know, I think if you use an example of people that used to commute into a, a city and are now living in in the countryside you know get get people in every couple of weeks but not just to sit at their desk get, get them in to do something to their purpose. Mm. yeah with a purpose mm. you know let's 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 get people in and and, and do some kind of off-sitey type stuff as part of our regular call call of business let's think about how we can make improvements make change mm. what what should we be thinking about for next year mm. how can we draw people in um who you know we might you might not hear from them so often on on zoom that they're kind of a bit more retiring and and maybe introverted how do we kind of draw them in to contribute mm. um so so for me i think the you know the, the, there's got to be more emphasis on being intentional about connecting and i don't think it even needs to be about the the business as usual stuff you know Go 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 and do an escape room. Go and do um, learn to DJ. Go and learn to cook something together. Things that you can bond around as a team, mm. because then the inspiration, the connection flows from there. I couldn't agree more. One of my the best teams I've ever worked for was one where we used to use our team days when we were expected to be uh, in an office sitting together discussing strategy stuff. We always sneak off. I'm not going to tell you who this was with. We always sneak off and do things like sports days and have our own um, sports days followed by a barbecue or whatever it was. And it was the closest connected team I've ever worked for. And when um, everything, when the team no longer existed for various reasons, everyone stayed in touch and everyone, yeah. that connection continued because it was so meaningful. And it's those, it's, it'll be when you're in a, you know, escape room or something that someone will say oh you know what I haven't have you thought about this and it's the, yeah. you know we know that when you're trying to focus on coming up with a solution for something and you're intensely focusing on it our brain's just like oh yeah. as soon you have your great ideas in the shower or when you're just not focusing on work and and finding those meaningful exchanges is is so so liberating so powerful yeah. I mean surround yourself by awe and nature yeah. you know an epic walk along the coastline right yeah. um you know ideas will flow but I did wonder when you were saying there that you used to sneak off which clearly you shouldn't have to sneak off for this sort of stuff but I do wonder <laughs> if the sneaking contributed to the bonding the fact you were doing something a little bit naughty together pro probably kind of helped right <laughs> but also I think you know the point you made about how we are in time coming together being intentionally planned is really important because one of a lot of people's bugbears around hybrid working I'm expected just to be in the office one day a week or two days a week just to sit at a desk what's the point in that and I tend to agree like what is the point there is a little bit of there was a someone was talking to a director of a, a law firm on Friday who was saying well actually overhearing conversations just being able to learn from each other and you know observing 
is really, really powerful in terms of development of people who are relatively new into that role. So there is something to be said for that. But otherwise, just sitting at your desk, doing what you could be doing at home, mm, could take it or leave it. If you're in your office and there's a time when we're saying, right, come together, even if it's we're all coming together for extended lunch to talk about stuff, or we're going to have a team meeting where we're not talking about the usual boring agenda stuff that actually we could do over a screen or via email. We're going to be doing it. We're going to be talking about how do we want our, whatever to, our team to look, or how do we want to work on this project going forward? Or what have we learned about the last project that didn't go so well? And and actually having a bit more of kind of creative conversation. Yeah, yeah you know. A few thoughts sprung to mind there. I've visited a few offices when I go and do talks, right? And I don't know if you've been in many offices recently, like client offices, but, you know, these big empty open plan floors, it's oppressive, right? I'm like, I look at this, I'm like, whoa, I would not want to be sitting at a desk in there now. I'm sure you get used to it and you tune in. But I think, you know, the the rethink of the future of work it needs to rethink space as well you know i'd like to see like kind of more clusters of people not that feeling of massive openness you know different spaces places going chill whatever it is use our space more creatively but i think the other thing we need to just be a bit i kind of uh, take that autonomy take that responsibility um and go and do something different you know like last time i caught up with my coo properly for a session we went to the beach, you know, we went for a swim in the cold sea and we had lunch and we talked about business over lunch and we both like cold water swimming. It was, it was a cool thing to do. Um, now, yeah, that, that I thought nothing of organizing that, but I guess if you're in a corporate environment, you might think, well, how will that be received? What will the, but just, just go and do it. Right. And sneak, mm-hmm. do a bit of sneaking as well. <laughs> be a bit rebellious. So when with form score, you got three main areas underpinning it: so well-being, yeah. effectiveness, and commitment. I'm curious about why they specifically those three areas. Yeah, so we we pivoted FormScore or evolved it as you as you mentioned, and the original app that that, that you're very familiar with is score out of ten on your well-being. Tag the kind of well-being factors, sleep, exercise that's driving it. And, and I'm really proud of this tool, and I think it's a great tool. It's great for individuals. You can connect with others on the app and share form scores. But what we found is um, it, to, to kind of implement this in a workplace, it's really hard to get people to engage in their well-being. It's really hard to get them to build a well-being habit, and it's also really hard to keep them. And I think even with something like form score that's simple and low user effort, it's hard to keep them, even if they like it, because they start to price this into their thinking anyway. Mm. And so that was part of the thinking. We also understood that managers are key in all of this and the pressure on managers to do better at well-being and team well-being um, is great. And so we, we repurposed the tool for managers. And then in addition to well-being, as you mentioned, we've include, included effectiveness and commitment. So for effectiveness, you could you, you could read productivity. Uh, for commitment, you can read engagement. So these are kind of the three elements that I believe and talking to a number of kind of thought leaders on uh, this sort of stuff are the, the three core tenets of performance readiness. You know, so if you're well and if you've slept well and your well-being is good, you'll be ready to perform. But if you are um not committed to your team then you won't use that 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 well-being similarly if you are drowned uh in meetings emails with a toxic boss then you won't be that effective so for me these three elements are kind of core to saying how ready somebody is to perform Mm. um and and what we did i think simplicity is really important when you're asking people to to do something particularly if it's frequently is we looked at how could we retain the simplicity of the original form score solution, give it a tool that managers can run in their weekly check-in. So the manager is then responsible for engagement and collect data on what is driving these three elements of performance readiness. So I'm pleased to say we've kind of, you know, we've done it that, you know, it'll take 90 seconds for an individual to do it. You do it in a team meeting, you get the results instantaneously but importantly, that idea about understanding as to what is driving it, particularly from a work perspective, we've kind of mapped that out. So you would tag meetings, workload, work stress, belonging, uh, deadlines, whatever it might be, tag, tag, tag really quickly to get an understanding of not only are, are how those three elements moving, 
but what's what's the underlying cause behind it that's really powerful for managers isn't it that specific data it 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 really is powerful i mean it's also powerful individuals and you aggregate up to the various levels in the organization it's powerful for the organization but this is the tool i believe that can help catalyze that next phase of the climb to everest um, because it's giving the data to understand, okay, you know, we are consistently seeing workload, work stress in this team. What's going on? This team over here is suffering generally from a lack of belonging. What's going on? And you can start to understand at a micro level then how is work and how is structuring work impacting not only well-being, but people's readiness to perform at their best. Yeah, and that's that readiness to perform, I think, is just an awesome line because if we just if every team just focus on those three words and and just enabled that and had the right conversations to make sure that people are ready to perform and that's just, that's the thing I like that's the simplicity that I like which is what I like about form scrum I like about just normalizing simple conversations and getting kind of stripping back because it's understanding and it isn't easy necessarily you know, the solutions what a manager might have to do, what leadership might have to do to resolve some of these issues that come up. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but you need to know about it and you need to address it, however challenging it is, because that's the stuff that's going to make the difference. Yeah, for sure. And and a, a couple of things. One, you know, I think organisations and managers shouldn't be afraid of opening up the can of worms and taking a look at what's in there um, if they truly care about this stuff and if they truly care about ultimately the return that shareholders are going to get, mm. um, which is the stated purpose of most corporations or or core to it um but i think you know the 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 other bit is you know it's it's really helpful for the individual to know that too um so you know how what what are the factors that are, are enabling me to perform um and then finally i think the other point i'd make is performance readiness that that doesn't sound like a soft fluffy issue that sounds like something that even the skeptical hard-nosed managers would be interested in and for me regrettably um I, I think it's more important to appeal to everybody with our language than if we were to say you, your well-being okay well well-being is not for me because it's soft and fluffy and that's something for hr to deal with how ready are your people to perform well if i'm driven by my bonus mr manager or mrs manager then i'm gonna be interested in that and so i think there's a there's a there's more of a, a kind of hardness to the phrase as well yeah I couldn't agree more the, the language is so important isn't it and finding the right words to engage and for, for to open up well that connection with people to to think about it and and engage with the topic rather than yeah, yeah putting shutting the door so are it, it, your data is it showing any particular trends in terms of employee readiness to perform? Yeah, so um, we're we're sort of just getting going with it, really. We kind of developed, redeveloped the product in, in quarter one. We're just getting it out there now. Uh, got a bunch of organisations using it. I think we consistently see workload tagged as the negative, the most negative driver of performance readiness. It's interesting. Some organisations you'll then see work stress uh, closely closely tagged with that, and then. It's quite interesting in the positives to see whether belonging, meaningful work, uh, sense of purpose are tagged as work drivers in in, in organisations that I think are you know, kind of getting this stuff right, but are still super busy or going through a change programme. We'll often see workload, work stress as a negative, um, but you know, sense of purpose and belonging um, support as tagged as positives. Mm. That tells a really good story. So we see that quite a lot. When those are tagged as negatives, then that's that's more of a, an indication the culture needs a lot of work, uh, as opposed to looking at resourcing and prioritization. Mm. So, too early for macro trends, but and then on the on the kind of personal stuff, sleep is you know still um, you know very highly tagged, both negative and positive, depending on how sleep is for people. And so, I think it's important as we get into the subtleties and the complexity of of the future of workplace well-being we don't forget the fundamentals you know if people sleep well 
they'll actually perform better they'll be better bosses they'll make better decisions they'll take less risks you know we still need to keep educating people on some of the fundamentals because they are tagged uh, quite significantly as well exercise being another one yeah and I think that kind of is going full circle back to we're talking about the sort of individual or kind of pinpointing particular strategies right at the start of this conversation actually having stuff around sleep oh you got a dog (laughs) having stuff around sleep or around financial well-being or those you know identifying specific pockets of need based on data and then providing support around that that people can access um I think yeah hugely useful because again it takes the pressure off managers having to try and resolve these issues if you know you've got someone in your team who's really struggling with sleep as a manager, what do I do about that? If I know in my organization, I've got a great, you know, people who come in and who can support with that. Um, we've got a solution that we can signpost people to, then that makes my life easier as well. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to the personalization of, of solutions that you mentioned. Um, but I think it's it's also a bit of a diagnostic, right? If it's um, people are tagging something that, you know, kind of menopause being an example, and you haven't got a solution, and people are tagging that, I mean, you probably should have a solution anyway, but it can inform um, your future investment in, in in areas that the business might need. So I think the more data we get on this, the more informed and, and the more relevant our well-being strategy and solutions could be. And do you think, you know, you talked earlier about the tipping point, um, this kind of watershed moment that's coming, do, or, or potentially is here, do, um, do you see, in your experience, leaders now using this data and looking at how to change what they're doing at an organizational level in terms of you know specific their culture or their um interventions or kind of really again joining the dots between you know whether it's hr and leadership and your mental health people over here and health and safety people over there and actually pulling everyone together and saying right let's let's get a a proper plan together that's going to take us into the future that's kind of fit for our workforce um yeah the answer the answer is yes but it's you know kind of we're not we're not there yet it's kind of that that approach is is quite rare i think some of the most forward-thinking organizations uh, are adopting that with yeah with well-being being a you know kind of dedicated um dedicated function that works across all of those other functions that you mention uh that might have a chief well-being officer uh with a line into the ceo and the board um that has proper budget um and that there's a a, ca- a shared responsibility and accountability across leaderships for uh, getting well-being right so well-being mm. should be like i think risk is a good analogy you know yeah, you know, in most businesses, whatever it is, you know, your managing directors of service lines will, you know, be interested in risk. HR will be interested in risk. IT will be interested in risk. The CEO will be interested in risk. For me, well-being should be like that. It should be, you know, that shared accountability and responsibility. Um, so I think there's a few. Again, you know, I'll, I'll name check Jen Fisher again in terms of what Deloitte in the US are doing. Um, she um, would would talk around all of this stuff. Um, as I say, I think, you know, most organizations are somewhere in the foothills. Um, and that's okay because everybody's going to walk that path. Um, and, and whether that's at the start with a, somebody's side of desk project trying to get some mental health talks in, but, you know, there's a lot of public beration for that kind of stuff, whether it's somebody bringing yo- you know, yoga and fresh fruit in because that's the first move they've made. Yes, it's not enough, but it, it's, it's, it's a move. Sort of, it's a move. And and for some people, it'll be transformational. But, you know, you've got to keep moving along that path. And, you know, kind of once we've reached Everest, if we ever do, then, um, you know, it's a, it's a case of helping others up, up that path as well through mm. influence on our supply chains, sharing information, sharing best practice. Um, so, yes, in answer to your question, but a few, mm. we need more to get to base camp and start that climb. And I think it's it's reassuring people they don't have to have the whole path mapped out because I think, again, some people are a bit anxious about starting out on something they can't picture necessarily what it's going to look like further down the road and I would say to people as long as you just start you know the direction you're going in you can't anticipate what's going to come up on the way you might come up with some amazing data that points you off in one direction or you might meet someone who's 
going to offer a different perspective that helps shape what you do next. You you can't predict everything that's going to happen further down the path, but it's just being clear about your first few steps, knowing the direction you're going, and knowing you've got the right people around you to ask questions or who to give you feedback if you're you know not quite getting there or you just need a bit of help. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that is one thing I find with the well-being industry community is is people are willing to share. Mm. Um, you know, people doing good stuff are willing to talk about it. You know, it's not being seen as a competitive uh, advantage thing. Um, but you know, everybody's situation will be unique. You know, you might have an engaged CEO, brilliant, you'll move quicker down the path. If not, you might have to kind of work with what you can work with um, and until that CEO becomes more enlightened or somebody else takes responsibility, whatever it might be. So, you know, I I celebrate everybody that is on that that journey, um, wherever they're at. Um, I'm I'm here to support them if they want to move along in a bit quicker. But, you know, I think there's a bigger challenge of how do we get more people starting? Um, because there's still, yeah, many workplaces that are not even looking at this. So what would be your two or three actions that you'd want people to take away from this maybe to get them started or to help them along that path a little bit more to really make a difference to employee some well-being but that obviously affects experience affects engagement yeah so I I think the, the the area that I would really focus on are your most senior leaders um and and really try to engage them in this topic as I say, a lot of the studies, the emerging data, the article that I've written that you've referenced can help do that, in my opinion, because when we start talking about performance, stock market performance, attraction and retention of talent, th- these are boardroom issues um, that, that are you know, priorities, top priorities. So bring that data to your most senior leaders and in any group of senior leaders know that Some of them will have a mental health challenge. Some of them will have a loved one with a mental health challenge. There are willing advocates there if we can engage them. I think so. That's the first thing. But I then think about, secondly, what is it you want of your senior leaders, right? You know, go to them, go to them with the issue, but go to them with an ask. Okay, we we want budget to do this. We want to um, train our line managers because that's what our people are telling us. Ask your people what they what they want around well-being. Listen. Um, don't just go and put a solution in because you want to get something done. Ask what people want. But I think if you want to be really forward thinking, start understanding by listening to your people and surveying what are the factors from work perspective from a work perspective that are impacting the well-being of your people. And you can do this at the start. You don't have to go through a linear journey of awareness talk, EAP scheme and everything and, and all of that. You can start with this. And I heard a great example of a law firm that used the pandemic not to get budget for a solution, but got commitment to do a you know a listening plan and have got a four-year mental health strategy in place because it'll take that long to implement what they want to implement. Yes, put the EAP in at the same time, get some yoga in, make sure there's plenty of fresh fruit, all of that. You know. So, you know, you can be bold and, and go straight in at the cutting edge. I really like that. And I think, you know, asking the questions, I'm a real fan of just ask people what they want, ask yeah. them if they're experiencing what feels good for them, what's getting in the way, what's working well. Um, and also just measuring uh, what you what it is that you're doing and making sure that it's actually making a difference. Again, yeah. the number of companies who have, and they might have mental health first aiders in place and you're like, yeah, we've got 16 of them. Great. What difference they're making? Don't know. We'll go and find out, you know, and if they're not accessing, you know, being able to access the right people because people don't know that they're there, well, how do we make that better? So it's not just ticking the box. It's actually making sure that they are making a real difference. Yeah. I mean, first aid is a good one. I'm a, I'm a fan of first aiders. And, and again, there's a lot of criticism of first aiders probably because people use it as a tick box exercise in certain cases, but yeah, to make to make first aid effective, you've got to recruit the right first aiders. You've got to train them, which people do. You've got to communicate that they're there consistently. So you've got to bring in your comms people. Um, you've got to support them. You so you've got to have kind of quarterly supervision of because they'll be potentially dealing with some tricky mm-hmm. events mm-hmm. and tricky conversations. 
you've got to understand the impact. Um, so you, you've got to measure conversations. You, you don't need to know who they're com having a conversation with, but how many conversations of the first aid has had? If it's one and you've got 14 of them, why have you got 14? Well, you haven't communicated properly. Um, and, you know, so I think there's a lot of stuff you can do around that, that if you really care, you can make that resource effective. Um, but again, you've got to be doing other things as well because they're not going to solve the problem in isolation. Yeah. So before I ask you, I'm going to ask you a blind question in a minute. Yeah. Uh, another guest who's been on this podcast. Is there anything I haven't asked you, Rob, that I should have asked you or anything you want to say that I haven't given you an opportunity to yet? Yeah, there is actually. You um, you haven't asked me about music. And, <laughs> um, tell us about music. <laughs> so so um, a, a little plug of, of something that's very different very, uh, that I've been working on. Um, so short story is I got um, COVID and then long COVID, which affected my ability to exercise. So I haven't really been able to properly exercise for three years now. And I'm a big cyclist normally. That's how I manage depression and bipolar. What I found was I started leaning back into my music. I'm a DJ. I started kind of getting into my tunes again. I started looking for online gigs and now kind of physical gigs. And it got me thinking that kind of music is so powerful on our minds. So I started doing a bit of research and found all of these great uh, studies around how music can help us sleep, how it improves memory and cognitive processing speed, how it helps manage pain, improves motivation. There's lots of good stuff on the brain. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I smash my two uh, passions together of DJing and public speaking, which I've done. Uh, and I've come up with this concept called harmonizing the mind, where I use music to illustrate things like this is what anxiety might feel like. This is what depression feels like or hypermania. Um, this is how to kind of build a, a well-being habit by layering beats and melodies. So really different. And I've just started to take this out to workplaces. We were in Nationwide's atrium uh, of their head office last week, which was really good fun. Um, so I'll send you a little link, but I just wanted to kind of mention that the power of music on our minds. And for me, it has been a lifesaver in the last three years. What a brilliant story. So creative. And and people need, people are a bit bored of just doing the same old same old so coming being able to deliver these messages get people thinking about this stuff through a very different medium is just really inspiring yes yeah, do send the link i will but you know you know what i found is that um the power of music on connection is amazing because you know 90 percent of us listen to music right regularly and so when you put on a, a, an event that's about music you'll get a different set of people that attend that event to those that would turn up regularly at mental health and wellbeing events. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this was one of the things I hoped that we're now seeing play out in practice. It's a really great connector. Fab, I can't wait to listen to that. Thank well, you for mentioning it. Right, so <laughs> Graham Hill, he's from Insight 6, has he's not provided so much of a question as you've got to finish the sentence. All right. Success is... Success is success is having the energy, the resources, the space, the time to do the things that you want to do in life. Full stop. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I like that. I mean, success, you know, I think there's there's many definitions of success. You know, for me, it was in, important to link it to well-being and I've just mm. reworked the definition of well-being. But I, I think success is being well. And I think, you know, a, a really interesting point that we're starting to see in this thinking of, of well-being is actually well-being is a great outcome measure. It's a measure of success, you know, it's a measure of success of our workplaces. It's, it can be a measure of better measure of success of our societies than GDP growth, which is a nonsense measurement. Um, and if we if we get it right, we can then be um, much better parents, much better friends, much better colleagues, much better human beings. So for me, success is being able to um, you know, be well and do the things that you want to do. I knew that was a good question for you. Yeah, I liked it. Thank you. Thank, thanks, Graham. 
Rob, thank you so much for today. You are very articulate. Uh, you have a lot of really good stuff to stay, say in this space. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to your take on well-being from an individual perspective, an organizational perspective, and just how people can start to think about it wherever they're at on that journey. So really, really helpful. We're going to put links in the show notes to uh, form score um, and to various other resources that uh, you'll send through to me so that people can go and check it all out for themselves um, and reach out to you if they, if they want to find out more. So thank you ever so much, Rob. Really, really grateful for that. Amazingly, so I've really enjoyed the chat. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. What's the one thing you will take away from this conversation to think about or do differently? I'd love you to join the club to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about exciting things I'm developing, including free downloadable resources. The link to sign up is in the show notes. I hope this episode has got you thinking about how you can make a real difference to the people you work with and how well you and those around you are engaging and thriving. Let's continue the conversation about the points raised in this episode. Or perhaps you have other questions about employee experience and performance. Email me at It's Time for Change, connect with me on LinkedIn, or why not pick up the phone? I love to walk and talk. My details are in the notes. Before next time, please give me a thumbs up on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for an extra brand point, leave me a short review. Let's spread the messages far and wide. Bye for now.